Old Testament reading this morning. A couple of errors. All my fault. <laughs> not, not typos. Pastor Joe gave the wrong information to his people. Uh, Job chapter 40 is our Old Testament reading. In our sermon, this is God's Sovereign Election, part four. It did seem like part three, right? No. Uh, part four, that's the actual title. But Old Testament reading, Job chapter 40. I ask you to please turn with me and Listen to these words. Keep these in mind as we're going through the message today. It's going to be a difficult message in many ways. In some ways, it hopefully it shouldn't be, but it may be. But um, hold on to what we read here as well as we're going through our Romans passage this morning. Because God is absolutely sovereign, and we must acknowledge and know that. Uh, chapter 40, Job has questioned God, you know, and put out these questions to the Lord. And so the Lord turns and answers and, and rebukes him, and Job respond, responds appropriately. So chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord, and he said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. Not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look to everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God is almighty. We're small. God is holy, righteous, and just, and sovereign, and we are not. Now over to Romans chapter 9. And this is part 4, Romans 9. And we're going to pick up in verse 19. Romans chapter 9. Paul's thinking of different objections that people will have to this doctrine of God's sovereign election, that God is absolutely sovereign. And so we dealt with the first one of God's fairness, and now this is the one of our freedom. Verse 19, you'll say to me then, why does God still find fault? If he's so sovereign, if he directs everything, if he commands, why does he find fault at all? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what the will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He has called 
not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. I pray, Lord God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts, Lord, and into our lives. We know that the battle is spiritual. We know, Lord God, that many of the questions that we have, especially dealing with your sovereignty, are, are difficult ones. And yet, Lord God, your word teaches us plainly that you are almighty God. Do not let Satan get a foothold in this area. Don't let him have his way with us, where we end up speaking against your word and believing as we ought not to, Lord God. So please, I pray that you would be with me to bring forth your word clearly, to proclaim it, Lord God, well, that we would receive it, Lord God, that we would look to you, that we would understand and we would rest in your word. So please illuminate our hearts by your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to dive right in. We're not going to take any shortcuts. Diving right in to the second objection that Paul anticipates. When he talks about God's sovereign election, people naturally have a couple questions. First of all, is that fair? Is that fair for God to do second? What about my freedom? What about my free will? What about my ability to choose God? Doesn't love choose? You have to, you know, that's what true love is, is being able to make that that choice on your own in that way. So we covered the fairness question or objection a few weeks ago. Today, we're going to tackle the free will objection. <laughs> Listen, the question is, are we just puppets then? Are we, if God is, are we just puppets on a string that God's manipulating and we don't really have free choices for real in any, in any way? Are we like free programmed robots? Are we kind of like the AI generation that's, that's coming about? The question in the mind that Paul anticipates that people might have is, how in the world can God find fault with me? How can you find fault with me, God, if I don't even have the chance to choose you? If I don't have that free will to choose you, that freedom to choose you or reject you, should be up to me in that way. So, Paul, um, you would think, and you would think at this point, Paul would go into kind of a long theological discourse to try to explain this and show us from scripture and passages and understanding that, you know, this is God is sovereign and we're not. Paul takes a different, completely different tact in this, doesn't he? Look what he says in verse 20. After he, who could resist your will? Raising the objection we, we just raised. What's Paul's retort? What's his response? He says, but who are you, oh man? Who do you think you are? Who are you to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? He just doubling down, tripling down on God's sovereignty. That's what he's doing. Has the potter not the right over the clay to make one out of the same lump, one vessel of honorable use and another of dishonorable use? That's 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 Paul's response. And it doesn't, again, you would hope there would be like a, a theological kind of discourse that he would go through. He doesn't do that. And it might even sound like Paul's kind of dodging the question in a way or just pulling rank on him or, you know, pulling that trump card and just, you know, hey, just be quiet, right? You know, just don't even talk to the hand at this point. I don't even have to, I'm not going to dignify that objection with, with an answer. It might even seem like he's reacting angrily, but he's not. He's not angry. He's not exasperated. He might be frustrated, perhaps, and maybe irritated for certain. That's what it sounds like. And then you ask that question, why? You know, why would Paul answer in this way? Why does he say it like this? And here's why. Because... As natural as it is for us to 
you know, for these kinds of objections to come into our mind once we hear about God's sovereignty and salvation, kind of the first questions come into your mind, isn't that fair? What about my, my free will? That objection comes into our minds and out of our mouths. What Paul is bringing forth here, and the idea is that we ought to know better. You, you ought to know that God is sovereign. So there's a frustration, especially perhaps with the Jewish members, because, but with all Christians, because we know that he is sovereign. That's why he says, we, you know this already. You know that God is sovereign. You proclaim that he's sovereign. Why wouldn't he be sovereign in all things, including those who come to faith? He's a sovereign God. You should know that. That's, that's the, thrust of his answer in this way. I don't need a deep theological discussion. You already know this. You've already learned this from Scripture. You should already understand that God is sovereign. So, for instance, in Psalm 115, verses 2 and 3, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. They would have been well acquainted with these Scriptures. In Daniel, chapter 4, and these, we could these are there and there's numerous scriptures that we could turn to. We're not going to do that, obviously, because of time. But Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are as counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? What are you doing? What have you done, Lord? Isaiah Passage after passage, scripture after scripture, speaks to God's sovereignty. That he is God and we are not. He has a purpose and a plan. So Paul in his mind is saying this. I'm going to ask you to please turn with me to Isaiah. We're going to look at uh, just three passages. We're going to do some turning of pages. Uh, Isaiah 14, if you would start there. We'll start at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Verses 24 through 27. And again, this is an, he's speaking to the Assyrians, but in this I want you to see God's sovereignty, his purpose and his plans, and they can't be thwarted. So beginning in verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned it, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. That's sovereignty that I will break the Assyrians in my hand, I'm sorry, in my land and on my mountains, trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. Listen, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? You see, that's God's sovereignty. I've purposed this. I'm planning this. This is my decree. It's going to happen in this way. Go over to chapter 46. Chapter 46 of Isaiah. I love hearing those pages turn. Turning pages, like Vody says. No, Daryl says. <laughs> Chapter 46, and beginning in verse 8. 
Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. The Lord is speaking to Israel. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. And it, and I will do it. God is sovereign over these things. They should have known that. So and you can see a little bit of Paul's frustration with that. Like you know, you, if the subjections come to you, you should know already that that God is sovereign. One more passage, uh, verse twenty nine. This is actually alluded to in, in our Romans passage, chapter twenty nine, beginning in verse thirteen. And the Lord is rebuking his people because they say that they love him with their mouths, but the way they live their lives just doesn't comport. It doesn't match up. You know, we, we love you, Lord. Yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But then we're really going to live their life the way we want to live it in our sin and not really be too concerned with what you have for us. So the Lord is rebuking his people in, in that context. He says this, and the Lord said, beginning verse 13, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are just far, far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with his people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hitting. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who says, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. And that's what Paul's saying. They knew this. Back to Romans. They should have known. So that objection out, right off is just something that, you know, c- comes from with inside of us as we're not keeping our eyes focused on the Lord as we ought to. Now this doesn't mean when we're talking about God's sovereign election that we, that we cannot or we may not or just, just be quiet, don't, don't even ask, don't, you know, don't say anything at all. No, 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 no. We could have very sincere questions and many of us have had in the past. Some of you still do regarding this. It's okay to be bewildered at times when we think about this, to express the fact that we do not understand. That's fine. God doesn't dismiss that and he allows for that and we as Christians ought to allow for that as well. But we need to ask sincerely. Hoping to, and this is really important, hoping to attain a greater understanding and not asking with contempt. So often, so much of the time, there's just kind of this, this idea or just taken for granted. Okay, God is sovereign, but not here, not in this case, because that violates my freedom. And, you know, how could a loving God be like that? And no, God's not going to do that. He, you know, there's, there's no, there's no way that, that, so there's that contempt or an accusation. How dare you say that I don't have freedom, that God, and so there's kind of an, it's an accusatory way, almost like blaming God. No, that can't be God. He's he's not like... And that's very reminiscent, just like the children of Israel when, when they were taken out and they're in the desert. What did they say to Moses? They were really speaking to God. You know, why did you bring us out here? Why did you bring us out here? To, to die? We would have been better off in Egypt. You know? So there's a way, even when we struggle with doctrines and teachings like this, to ask with, with true understanding, with a teachable spirit, 
saying, okay, let me understand this from Scripture. So I want to bring that point out and bring that across because it's not just, okay, just shut up and listen, don't ask any questions. That's not it at all. It's absolutely ask questions, but be careful how you ask those questions and how you pursue these things. What kind of spirit do you have? So as we talk about this, as we think about this this idea of the free will, Here's what I want you to understand, and here's what you need to understand. We've talked about this before. We're just going to reiterate it and say it again. You must remember that you do act freely. We all act freely. You understand that? We act freely within the confines of our nature. It's so important to understand that. Within the confines of our nature, and our nature is fallen, right? We're, it's, we're in sin. That's the idea. Ultimately, our motivations, our desires, our actions are tainted and stained by sin. We do make those free choices, but we're confined to our sinful, fallen nature. That's as far as we're going to go. We can't do anything to please God, earn our salvation. Apart from Christ opening our eyes, we're not even going to want to be with Him. You know that if you're a Christian. How much did you want the Lord before you were actually saved by Him? See, Isaiah 64, 6 and 7 tells us this. All of us have become like one who's unclean. Even our righteous deeds, even the good things that we do, because people who aren't believers absolutely do good things and helpful things, you know, sacrificial things at times. So we're not saying that. But even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment because they can't save us. They're always tainted with sin. It's not pure and holy and righteous and just. Only Jesus did that perfectly holy, righteous, and just keep the commandments and the law of God. That's what gets imputed to us. When we try it, we're always going to fall short. We fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind has taken us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Understand? That's we're we're confined to to our nature in that way. That answers this question. That's you know nobody's will, nobody's free will is violated or manipulated by God. People act within the confines of their will, which is in bondage to sin. Do you understand that? That's a big, big deal to know and to grasp when we think about this idea and this question. Oh, God's not fair. What about my free will? Don't I get to choose? Apart from Christ, you will not do that. You can't do that because you're confined to the nature that you have that's sinful and fallen. Unless God does something, uh, gives a prevenient grace, but that's nowhere taught in Scripture. Not at all. So when he comes and he gives us that, he allows us to keep acting of our own accord, just the way we would always act. You know, that's what he does. He's not preventing a person who would otherwise believe from believing. He's saying he's not saying, oh, this person wants to believe. No, 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 you can't believe because I didn't choose. It's not saying that at all. It doesn't mean that. He's not preventing a person who would otherwise be believing, but he simply allows them to live the way they want to live. That's what he does, the way they will live. He doesn't intervene. He lets us go. And thus, and here's the thing, thus, he fulfills his purposes in that. Now that blows your mind and that's hard to understand and that's another sermon, that's another class, but even our free actions work in accord with his decree to fulfill his purposes. How do we know this? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Isaiah Isaiah 10 with the Assyrians? God was re- or Israel was rebelling against God, of course. God said, I am going to send this nation, the Assyrians, to come and punish you, the judgment, because you've rejected me. So they're going to be my judgment on you. Okay? We're not going back and read it because we read it two weeks ago. Israel is the instrument of his judgment. God will punish the 
But God turns around and says, now I'm going to punish you, Assyrians, for doing that. Now that doesn't sound fair at all. I'm here, you're an instrument of my justice and my judgment, but now I'm going to punish you for punishing these people. Why did he do that? How could he do that? Because the Assyrians were acting from their own motivations, right? They were acting from their own will. They saw Israel. They wanted to conquer them. They hated them. They wanted to to destroy them, overtake them. They wanted to exalt themselves. And for that, they would answer to God. Do you understand? They acted very freely. They did exactly what they wanted to do. They were an instrument of God's hand as punishment, and yet they didn't see themselves as an instrument in God's hand. They saw themselves as like, I hate those people. We're going to destroy those people. We're going to take those people over. And for that, they would answer to God. Does that make sense? That's exactly what's taught. Whether you get it or not, that's what's taught in Scripture. (laughs) Can't put it more plainly than that, I don't think. Acts chapter 4, we have this, 27 and 28. Apostle says this, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take in place. Here it is again. This is it. This is God's song. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant. This is how Jesus was brought to the cross. How was he brought to the cross? By their decisions. They hated him. The Sanhedrin hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. They were plotting and scheming. We know from John that they had been plotting for a long time how they could kill Jesus. We don't want him in our midst. We don't want this guy here. We reject him completely. Pontius Pilate had different motivations. It was more political. I mean, he didn't really want to put him to death, but he felt the power, the power, the, you know, the pressure, I should say, right? So he, he was acting from his own motivations. He wasn't being directed like a robot. He wasn't a puppet on a string. He wasn't AI just doing what God, no. It's acting like we would do, just like we would do. And the decisions that we make, that same thought process, same motivations, same desires, right? That was going on at that time. They had those things. They made free choices. They acted just the way that they wanted to. And yet, I need that verse again. (laughs) And yet, to do whatever your hand had planned, had your plan had predestined to take place. That's too much for us. We can't plumb that depth. We can't know the mind of God like that. We're not even going to try to do that. But you need to understand that. Paul never says here, when he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God, what is mold? He, like I said earlier, he's doubling and tripling down on God's sovereignty in that way. He never says anywhere, you know what? I think you're right. I, you know, maybe you are right with those objections. Maybe God isn't fair. Maybe, maybe, you know, he's, he is suppressing. Paul never does that. He says, he never says, yeah, you're right. Since God is sovereign, I guess you're not really responsible for your actions. And you're not at fault for not choosing Jesus Christ. Is that anywhere in scripture? Is that anywhere intimated by Paul? No, not at all. The moral responsibility is never, ever taken away from the individual. We're always culpable for the decisions that we make. You need to understand this. God doesn't force anybody to sin. He doesn't make anybody sin. He doesn't keep anybody from believing in him. He simply leaves them to their own devices. That's it. That's it. Listen, God doesn't force anybody to believe. Were you forced to believe in Jesus Christ if you're a Christian this morning? No, man. 
You're not going to believe against your will. He doesn't drag anybody kicking and screaming into the kingdom. No, I don't want to be saved. I guess, well, you know, I know some of us resist his will and eventually breaks us down. But, you know, it's not, it's not this idea. He doesn't force us against our will into the kingdom. What he does for his elect, as we're talking about here, he graciously, graciously regenerates our hearts. He opens our eyes. Oh, now I see. Now I see what a sinner I am. Now I see the love of Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. He unstops our ears. We hear that message. It makes sense to us now, right? It makes sense to you. I see it. I need him. I love him. I repent. We freely, willingly Believe in him, rest in him, choose him if you want to say that, absolutely, as he opens our eyes. That's the story of salvation and of his elect. No true Christian wishes he or she wasn't. Do you wish you weren't a Christian? The only people that do that are those professing Christians who want, you know, have one foot in the church, one foot in the world, and just kind of, oh, I can't do this because I'm a Christian. You know, if I, if I wasn't a Christian, then I would do, the, if things were different, no real Christian ever says that when they're tempted at all, right? When you're tempted as a Christian, you're like, Lord, please, no, keep me from this temptation. And even when we do sin and fall, we're, we repent of the Lord and we hate that sin and we battle against sin, right? No truth. We, we don't wish that we weren't Christian. No one in heaven is somehow wishing that they weren't there. Right? It's his sovereignty. He changes us. Consequently, no one in hell, and you need to understand this, no one in hell is repentant and remorseful or contrite. You need to know that because many people think, oh, now once they're in hell, oh, now we, if I only had another chance, then I would. No, 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 no. If you were in our class on hell, you understand that same nature. Just, just as we're converted, we have a new nature in Christ. We bring that to, with us to heaven. The same nature goes to hell with the unbeliever as well. So they're not necessarily crying out to God. They're not praising God. They're not wishing they were in heaven. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man, he lamented over the fact because he wanted relief. You know, just like any prisoner, they'd want relief. Any prisoner would not want to be in prison. They'd, they'd get out if they could, even though they're guilty. They're not going to say, well, I'm guilty and I deserve to be here. Most, most prisoners, they, they'd get out if they have the opportunity to do that. He lamented being there. He wanted relief. He even wanted to warn his family, hey, this place is bad. You know, place is bad. Be careful. But what was missing? There was no repentance. There was no remorse. There was no contrition on his part at all. Right? Once apart from Christ, keep resenting, keep rejecting, and keep justifying themselves, and they keep shaking their fists at God. You understand that? It doesn't stop, and it doesn't end here in this life. They, they, they continue. When, you, when we read about weeping and gnashing of teeth, what do we usually associate that with? With the pain. And that's true. I mean, there's definitely the pain and, and, and that being driven to tears and that. And, uh, but did you ever think about that anger that they still have against God? Because they don't believe that they should be there. So when you're really angry, have you ever been so angry or have you ever seen somebody so angry that they gnash their teeth and they literally start to cry, right? They start to cry, I'm just so mad at you and I want to kill you. That's more like it. That's more like it. No one believer wishes that he or she was a Christian. Believe me, 
Believe me, they don't. They may admire certain things about Christians for a time. They may wish some things were different in their lives. But when they know what you believe as a Christian, when they know what we believe as a do you know any unbeliever that really wishes that they were a Christian, that really wants to be a Christian? Especially when you start talking to unbelievers about your faith and who you are, about God's sovereignty. What? God doesn't, no, no, no. God's a God of love and he lets us make our own free will choices all the time. And, you know, he accepts everything and everyone, doesn't he? That's my God anyway. When you start talking to him, the fact that they're sinners, me, a sinner, what do you guys believe as Christians? Do you understand that? The things that we take for granted as Christians, when we talk to non I mean, if you get down to it and you get serious about what you believe, they're going to look at you like you're nuts, cross-eyed, crazy. Are you kidding? You believe that? Really? Seriously? That you know, two people who love each other can't be together no matter what their sex, gender is? Are you kidding me? That's that's how you... That's what ha- They don't want to... They're, they're not wishing to, to be Christians. When you talk about an absolute standard, go ahead. Talk about an absolute standard to an unbeliever. There's only one way, God's way. There's only one way of salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. Go ahead, talk like that. Say that to people and see the response that you get, right? They don't wish, no unbeliever wishes that he or she was a Christian. That is until the Lord changes their heart. Do you understand this? That's what Paul is saying here. And I love the way Paul handled this because he didn't go into a deep doctrinal dissertation, which he could have done. He said, no, man, listen, are you saying you can talk back to you? You should know better. You're a Christian. You know God is sovereign. You say he's sovereign in every part of life, don't you? We call all the day, all day long, God is sovereign. God is over all things. He is every passage that we read. He does, he does this. He has his plan, his purpose, his decree, except when it comes to this then he's not sovereign anymore in salvation? Why? That's Paul's like, why? Why would you think that? Of course he is. Of course he is. And you should know that. Who are you to talk back to God in that way? What right do we have in that way to say that? You know this. You know that God is sovereign. Why wouldn't he be sovereign in the area of salvation in an election that way? Because if he left us to our own freedom we would all end up in hell. He has to intervene and praise God that he does. So he goes on to say this. He does give us verses 22 and 23. We see purpose and kind of a payoff to God's sovereign election. And I want to turn and focus in on this. So in verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 22, he says, look, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. So now he's turning the page, turning the corner a little bit. I want you to hear this. In his wrath, in God's wrath, We see his power, don't we? We see what each one of us deserves. We see that. Because of our sin, because of our rejection, because of our rebellion, when he says he endured with much patience, those vessels prepare for destruction, what he's saying is God allows the rebel to rebel, to keep rebelling. He allows for a season tyrants to reign in very sinful ways. And you can think over the history of like, man, Lord, why, why is that going on? Why so long, so many years at times, sometimes not so long, other times, man, when's that going to stop? 
One second. He allows the disobedient to disobey for everybody to see very clearly. He allows the, the rejectors to keep on rejecting him. And, and on, a, on a mass scale, but even on a, a smaller scale, sometimes in your own life, you have a person in your life who's just a sinful, wicked person and they keep going on and on and on. That, that's what he's saying here. He endures with much patience those vessels of destruction. And they will get, just like that song that says, you can run on for a long time. Sometimes God lets you run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God is going to cut you down. That makes, that kind of fits right in here, doesn't it? Because you can go for that way. He's prepared these vessels of destruction to show his power. Endure with much patience. Those prepare for destruction because we see that wickedness. We see where sin leads. We see how vile, how evil it is. Again, whether it's a large scale or small scale, like even in some of your own families, some people that you know, it's a real wicked person who lives and just keeps on seeming to get away with it and go on with it. You know, those traitors, those people that you wish were just put, like even like the scammers, right? The scammers that call people up, especially with the elderly, how they scam and they don't care. They want to get your money. They want you to lose everything. And when we see them be punished for that, and just, yes, right? So we have that. We They got what they deserved. They got what they deserved. So God has those vessels of destruction before us to show his power, to endure with much patience that evil, to show us the depth of his grace. Because here's the thing, and here's what I want you to understand. Apart from God's grace, all of us, each one of us, each one of you deserve God's wrath, deserve God's judgment, ought to be a vessel of destruction. Do you see that? But he has put those up there for a time for our sake, for our good, that we might see his goodness, that we might see what we have in him. Please mark that down. Please mark that down. When he says he's showing his wrath to make known his power, he endured with much patience. Let them go. Vessels of wrath prepare for destruction. They were going to get theirs for sure. They're going to answer to God. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That's us. That's you if you're in Jesus Christ. You know you're a vessel of mercy, that he has saved us, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. There's his predestination, prepared beforehand for glory. You're destined for glory because of Jesus Christ. Even us, there he is, he gives us the answer, whom he has called, not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles as well. So understand this, and here's where we're going to end on this note, and I just pray that you're really challenged and encouraged now, because of what you learn about God's sovereignty, and to know these vessels, of his, his mercy is on us. Know that we, as his elect, know the riches of his glory. If you're a Christian this morning, you know the riches of his glory, don't you? Don't you know the riches of, God's, of Christ's glory? By the mercy, the unearned, unmerited favor of God, we have received that. That's first of all. We've received mercy. And as such, because we see what we deserve in those vessels of destruction that God has, all those, all that, which we are very much part of and we very much deserve, but he's called us out by his mercy, what we received, then every single true believer in Jesus Christ, every thoughtful Christian is a forever grateful Christian. If you're not a forever grateful Christian in Christ Jesus, then there's something wrong. You need to examine your walk in the Lord Jesus Christ because we need to be grateful every single day for what he's done. That's the mercy. When we see that evil, say we don't say, oh, that person is so evil. Yeah, okay, yeah, they're so evil and they deserve what they got. Yeah, they deserve what they got, but I deserve that too apart from Jesus Christ. And that's a, that shows me his mercy and his love for us that's extended to us. Do you get this? Do you understand this? 
We can't give a reason why. Why did you choose me? Why me, Lord God? I know what I deserve. We know that we do not deserve salvation, and yet we have received mercy. And so, because of that, our lives need to be lived in light of this. And this is what I want to encourage you so much to do. It's live your light, life in light of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Understand that could be you very easily destined for destruction, and yet you are called to mercy. So don't waste, don't waste one moment of your life living for yourself. Don't waste one moment on yourself, living selfishly, living sinfully, living flippantly, just taking for granted everything that you have in Christ. But live selflessly, live honestly, live sincerely as Christians, loving him and living, seeking to, to love him. Know, you know the riches, knowing the riches that we have. Stop wasting your time on worldly pleasures and worldly pursuits. Oh, I just, it doesn't mean you can't have fun, it doesn't mean you can't go on vacation or have things. I'm not saying that. But those can't be the main things in your life. Jesus Christ must be. So don't waste time on worldly pleasures, but store up treasures in heaven by doing good, by loving Christ, by being faithful. Come on. This is in light, in light of what we have. That's why those those objects of destruction are an example for us, a motivation for us of to, to help us, to encourage us. Not thinking too much or too highly of yourself. Please don't do that. Stop doing that. Count others as more important than yourself. That's what Paul does. Paul teaches us that in Corinthians, doesn't he? You know, it's all about me, me. I need this. I need that. And then I can help out. No, 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 no. Think of others as more important than yourself. You need something from me? I'm going to be there. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to give you what I've got. Please, you're more important to you than I am to myself. That's that's living in the riches. If you know the riches of Christ, if you know the riches, knowing the riches that we have, be bold for Christ. Be strong in Christ. Be courageous through Christ. Don't be timid. Don't be weak. Don't be cowardly like so many of us tend to be. You know, we just kind of live our life and we hide it under a blanket. We put it under a bushel, right? Don't do that in light of who we are in Christ. In light of what we have, in light of what he's saying right here, we're those, in order to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy, riches of his glory to us, live with honor, dignity, integrity, which are grounded in, in products of faith. That's where they really come from. Don't live your life in a disgraceful way with shame and deceit where somebody can have something against you doesn't matter if they slander you, but don't let them be right in that way. Our meaning as Christians, because of knowing these riches, is defined by our identity in Jesus Christ. We're like, if you, if you see me, you, you want to see the glory of Christ. Like, I'm not my own. I belong to Him. Our identity is in Christ. Our purpose is to glorify Christ always and in all things. The riches of His glory. Our worth, our value is not found in some identity we have for ourselves or what other people think of us. No, no, our worth and our value is found in the love of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. That's where my worth is. I don't think too much about myself. You can say anything you want about me. Who cares? I know who loves me. I know who has me in his hand. It's Jesus Christ. And our our value, my worth is from him. I don't need it from other people. I don't need it from changing this or changing that in my life. It comes from Christ. Understand this? That's what he's talking about, the riches of his glory. We live in the reality of who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. Right? 
We live in the reality of who we are and what we have in Christ. That's the reality we live in. Who I am in Christ, what I have in Christ. Not in the lies, not in the fantasies that the world creates and the world lives in. There's a dichotomy there. The riches of his glory, listen, is the wealth that we've obtained in Christ. We have the truth. Do you know that? We have the truth. We have the truth. We know the problem and we have the answer. Amen? Live in the riches and the glories of Christ. That's what it is. And we need to be proclaiming that. The problem's not environmental. It's inherent. It's within us. The the problem is not emotional. It's spiritual. The problem's not psychological. It's sin. That's the bottom line. That's where it all springs from. The answer's not found in psychotherapy. The answer's not found in New Age spirituality. The answer's not found in worldly philosophies. The answer is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the answer. Amen and praise God. This is what Paul's saying when he says, I want you to know the riches of the glory for vessels of mercy which have prepared beforehand for glory, even us. So we have that glory in Jesus Christ and it's not just for this life. It's for all eternity. We have the glory to come and the riches poured out on us and we want others to know that when we share that wealth, that overflowing, the riches of that glory is when we're productive Christians, when we're faithful Christians, when we're living for him and not not ourselves, when we want to serve him, when we're giving of ourselves, when we do whatever to, to be used by him, to be spent by him, to live for him and to die for him if that's what we're called to do please that's what it's there for because even if our life is taken from us we enter into that glory and we really experience a richness well done good and faithful servant who doesn't want to hear that who doesn't want to know that when we live this way we see god's sovereignty in this we understand it for the riches of a glory, when we live this way, he is glorified. He is honored. Do you know that? When we live faithfully, he's honored by that. And that's what we want to do. We want to be strong in him. I know we wimp out. I know we get scared. I know we sin. And we want to be restored in that. But when you live faithfully and you have that clear conscience, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have been faithful to my Lord and Savior insofar as I'm able to be in Jesus Christ. Then that's good. We don't want to go having regrets. Oh, I wish I would have said. I wish I would have done. Oh, I don't know. No, man, no. Be bold. Be confident. He's glorified, and the world sees that salvation is through Jesus Christ. Now, most of the world's going to reject it. It's going to reject you. That's right. That's part of the price that we pay. But his own, those whom he's called from all eternity, his own will be drawn and won to him, even as we live in the riches of his glory. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be in Jesus Christ. That's what we need to know. Sovereign God loves us, calls us, redeemed us, shows us how much he loves us by these vessels of destruction, what we deserve, but we receive mercy. So let's live our lives for him in a way that's honorable, in a way that's right, in a way that's brave, bold, and just in a way that's pleasing unto him.